Welcome to the Simply Financial Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Calandra. We are in season number four still, and this is episode number 33. Thanks for coming back. We'll just call this part two of our excellent conversation. I enjoyed the first part, so you set a high standard for the second portion. Given everything that's happened, we have had extraordinary efforts by the Federal Reserve to help the economy and the markets. And we also have a lot of activity from the federal government, mostly the CARES Act that was passed. So can you describe some of the actions that say the Fed has done? Just in, we don't need to do a deep dive, but I am correct in describing their actions as unprecedented, right? Yeah, if if there's ever a time to use that word, I think now is the time to use it. And, and they've kind of created an alphabet soup of programs. But really, when you, when you think about it, when we go back to March and April, one of the things that companies needed was capital. They needed money. They needed liquidity. And in a time of high uncertainty, that was a very difficult thing to come by. So the Federal Reserve essentially stepped in. Now the Federal Reserve oversees the banking system and said, we're, we're going to step in here as, as a resource to provide this liquidity. We're going to do things like providing access to capital for companies. We're going to help run things like that PPP program to get resources to small and medium-sized businesses in addition to some of the larger companies. And really their goal throughout this was to provide some confidence in the inner workings of the financial system, to know that, that there was still abilities to lend, to borrow money. There was still ability uh, to finance. And if, if you needed resources to get through this time, there would be ways to do that. And, and in a time where liquidity was drying up, I think it was an incredibly valuable thing. I think it was, it was in, in, in many cases necessary. And then we had on top of the actions by the Fed, we had things done from Congress uh, to help on the individual's side of things, whether that was the expansion of unemployment benefits or some of the, the checks that went out. So it's not without its side effects. Um, there's going to be some questions about all this money that came into the system, but it, it eased kind of, it, it helped lubricate the gears of business. It helped keep things moving forward in a time where all of a sudden things were gunking up and nobody knew where to look. So uh, the Fed took extensive action during the financial crisis. And Mm -hmm. back then we talked about unprecedented activity by the Fed. You know, there's a bunch of terminology around this. We don't need to get too far in the weeds, but they expanded their balance sheet and Mm -hmm. they did things that previously the Fed had not done before to tackle the really significant problems we were experiencing in 2008, 2009, during the height of the financial crisis. But, mm-hmm. and I don't know the numbers, maybe you could cite some of them. What the Fed has done this, this time has dwarfed what we did just over 10 years ago and makes that seem like you know a kid running a lemonade stand in front of their house. Is that a fair way to look at it? They, they've certainly done more. They've allocated more. They've increased the size of their balance sheet faster. But I think what's more important than, than you know, just the absolute size and the change of their balance sheet or in their assets is how they did some of these things. It, back in 08, 09, I don't want to go too deep into the weeds, but essentially what they did is they put money on bank balance sheets. They, they bought treasury securities from banks, said, here, you have additional capital. The problem was that, that people weren't asking for some of that same capital back then. And the money ended up sitting on bank balance sheets. It ended up not in vaults because they didn't create paper money. It's all digital now. 
but it ended up on their balance sheets and they just kept it with the Fed and they got interest. It never made its way out into the economy. This time around, not only have they done some of the same quantitative easing, some of the purchases of securities like they did before, but a lot of these other ones went directly to businesses, small, medium, and large. So it's, it's almost like they took what they did before, they replicated that, and then added a whole new layer that moved past just the general banks and targeted directly towards uh, towards companies and ultimately towards individuals. And so it was a massive increase in their balance sheet. It was uh, beyond the scope of what they did back then. And, um, you know, one of the questions is, does it set a new standard for how they're going to respond in times of crisis? Absolutely. But on an optimistic note, they perhaps learned from the mistakes of 2008, 2009, because we had an economic recovery, but it was mm -hmm. not an economic recovery that ever met anyone's expectations. It was always slower growth, more mediocre than what our politicians uh, had really wanted. So it was good. Right. We, we grew and we grew for a long time, but we never really hit our bogey in terms of growth. And some of the complaints our politicians got was that Wall Street got bailed out, but Main Street didn't. And I mm -hmm. think that's not just a political complaint. I think that was a real life economic complaint. Whereas now through the PPP, the unemployment, the stimulus check, you know, they got money into people's hands directly bypassing Wall Street, got it to into people's hands directly. And we could complain about some of the things I know the $600 extra in federal unemployment yep. means that some people are making more unemployed than they were. And that is problematic. But I actually, personally, I give it high marks because they did it quick and they got it right to the source. And so maybe they sacrificed a little bit of quality with the underwriting, but that mm -hmm. speed and direct to the source was really what the situation called for. Is that a reasonable opinion? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, this was, this was a very different situation than 0809. 0809, we had a disconnect in the system right? There was some disconnects in terms of leverage, some, some, some issues with bank capitalization. People were buying houses they couldn't afford. They were levering up beyond what was reasonable. This time, it was, it was different in that companies and individuals were heavily in, impacted, and it wasn't because they really had done anything wrong going into this, right? They had no choice over the shutdowns. They didn't right. expect that was going to happen, and, and it was a, a decision that was kind of placed upon them. So I think um, the government, the Federal Reserve looked at this and said, we need you to do this because of this virus. We are making this decision and we understand we're putting you in that spot. So we're going to try to do things to help you move forward from this. And, and the complaint back in 0809, right, the Fed was the one that took action in 0809. We didn't get as much out of Congress on some of these other pieces. This time it's Congress because the Fed can't do the unemployment benefits. The Fed could do some of the stuff with the PPP, but they needed Congress working with them. Congress kind of sat before. They, they did TARP. They did some other programs, um, but they've been in more involved this time around. And, and so that is going to, I think it's going to result in a quicker recovery. And the fact that the fundamentals are in a different spot this time, that the economic fundamentals for growth were there before COVID hit, and they largely remain in place from a, when we think of like a tax and regulatory standpoint, I think those are going to contribute to a faster recovery from this as well. But I, I think ultimately when they look back, the results they got from the actions were an improvement over the results they got out of 0809.
So you would, you would, if you were grading them as a professor, uh, you would yeah. grade the Federal Reserve, you'd give them an A, A plus, A minus? I don't know if I'd, I'd put them quite that high. I think they've, they've made some interesting decisions. I think, and this is me as an economist, and I don't want to get too deep into monetary policy That's and fine. supply side versus demand side dynamics. One thing that we've typically seen, whether it's Congress or the Fed, is that in any situation, they kind of view themselves as, as the savior. They view themselves as the one that can help us get out of it, and they, put, they, they let the market in and of itself do less of the work. And so I would, right now I'd give them a, a B. I think that, and in part, I, I think they've done some things that have brought back the speed. I think they've put some precedents in place that could be an issue as we move you know, into right. the future, so if that's the expectation on how we're going to respond. And don't forget about the debt. Right, the debt load that we're taking on, it feels like free money now. And it feels like because it's seeing the response, it's seeing the recovery now, but that is something that needs to get paid into the future. And I think that is a concern because it exacerbates this problem that we've had. So there's no perfect solution. I'm not saying I could do better, but I'm sure there's things that they will look back on this time as they did with 0809 and say, okay, next time we're going to do it a little bit differently. Here's what we wish we would have done that we didn't, and here's what we did that we wish we wouldn't have done. Sure, because there's tremendous consequences to all of these actions, these large uh, activities and programs that they put in place. And mm -hmm. so I think sometimes, again, kind of uh, complaining about the media, you could be for what the Federal Reserve did and the government did, and still be worried about the negative impact, the negative consequences that could come later. They're not yeah. mutually exclusive. And I'm, I, I give the Federal Reserve high marks. And I think the CARES Act was pretty good. Um, we could nitpick on policy and stuff like that, but they acted quick. They, they went big. And I think that's good. The key question is, though, what are the consequences going to be down the line? A lot of people are fearful about the budget and the deficit that the that right. like you said, it feels good now and maybe we needed to do it, it was no alternative, but how do we deal with the budget and the deficit moving forward? That could be something that dampens some of the economic enthusiasm a lot of people have and it sounds like you have too. That's a real concern, right? Absolutely, that was my number one pre-COVID. As we entered into this year, if, if COVID didn't happen, the number one thing I would have been talking about and saying this is the issue we need to focus on was the debt. We continue to run deficits year in and year out. We continue to spend. It's a kind of a bipartisan agreement to spend more than we take in, regardless of where the tax rates are at. We've pretty consistently done that. Um, now, when we think about the debt and the impact it's going to have on the economy and the markets, there's a short term and there's a long term view. Right. Over the long term, we keep adding debt and we've added debt consistently year in and year out. And that is a worrying trend because ultimately, in order to pay for that, we shift spending from the private sector, the businesses, the entrepreneurship, the innovation to the public sector to pay off that debt. And I think personally that the incentive structure towards growth is better in the private sector than it is in the public sector. I'd rather see more of our spending, more of the, uh, uh, the, the money, the funds in that area of the economy. Now, over the long term, that's the concern. In the short term, what matters most is we think about the debt and we think about the spending and the impact it could have over, let's say, the next three to five years. The key number is how much are we paying year in and year out to service this debt? How much does it cost us to operate this debt load that we have? 
Now, while debt's been rising consistently, pretty consistently for decades, interest rates have been declining since yeah. the 1980s, right? That's, and that's at the same time- enabled this spending. Yes, that's, it, it has. And, and so the, the interest rates have been declining. Our economy has been growing. We've gone from, in the 80s and 90s, we were spending 3% of GDP, 3% of the nation's output to pay our debtors on the debt that we had outstanding. Coming into this year, 20, at the end of 2019, we were at about 1.7%. It was on the lower end of the range that we've seen over the last 60 to 70 years. Now, pre-COVID, pre-COVID, the average yield on our debt was 2.4%, okay, 2.4. The debt that we've issued in response with the stimulus and, and, and these efforts, we've been issuing at around 0.2%, incredible, historically low. And the other thing that happens is that debt that we issued 10 years ago, right? We, we issued debt in 2010, it's coming due today. We issued it in 2010 and we were paying 3% on a 10 year treasury. We're, that's rolling over. What do we do when we have debt that's coming due here in the U.S.? We issue new debt to pay the old debt. Right. And so the, the total level there doesn't change. But we've moved from a 3% yield that we were paying on that debt to, on the 10-year now, 0.6%. And so even our existing debt is moving lower in terms of our cost to carry it. It's kind of like refinancing a mortgage. You could refinance your mortgage. The amount you still have left to pay could stay even but you do it at a lower rate, you extend it out over time, and it becomes more affordable, it's, it's easier to pay off. So in the short term, the next three to five years, that has certainly worked as a, a headwind against uh, the rising cost of the debt. It's not gonna be something that throws us into a recession or is a significant headwind to growth uh, next year or in 2022, 2023, or, or for the next few years to come. But I've got two kids at home, okay? I've got two kids. Uh, one is, is two years old, one is five years old, and, and rates are going to rise eventually. As the economy comes out of this and as the economy improves, one day we are going to have to pay this debt back. And as, as rates rise, that burden is going to rise along with it, and I'm concerned about what they will inherit. I don't want to move towards a situation like France where they, they, they have to raise their taxes to pay this debt, and, and they have this perpetually – slower growth. They grow, they, they move forward, but they don't move at the pace that we do here in the United States or in, in some other countries. I would rather figure out, I think it's, it's, it's a key concern. We need to figure out, we need to figure out the spending side. No country in history has ever taxed their way to prosperity. We need to figure out the spending side, but you know, you fix the roof when the sun is out. When we're in a hurricane, you batten down the hatches, you do what you need to do to get through it. Now the economic sun is starting to come back up. It's starting to return, you know, and I'm hoping in the years ahead, we take this as a serious thing and say, before it becomes a bigger problem, let's, let's figure out how to address this. But are you optimistic? This is sort of a political question, but are you optimistic that when the sun comes out and the pandemic is in the rearview mirror and the economy recovers and is in growth mode, which I think we could agree is going to happen. How yep. optimistic are you that our politicians and candidly our citizenry will be serious about making some decisions, perhaps difficult decisions about paying down the debt? Because I don't really see a whole lot of evidence of that happening in the past. So I hear what you're saying, but that might be um, a hope yeah. over experience. No, it is. It, it, 
I, I hope it happens, but I'm, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not optimistic about it. I don't see anybody in Washington who's saying and campaigning on, look, we need to rein this in. Right. We need to figure this out. And we promise it's a lot easier to get elected. It's a lot easier to campaign on. If you elect me, here's what I will do for you. Here's what I will get you because you deserve it. And, and I want to make sure you're covered on X, Y, Z. We'll figure out how we pay for that later, but I'm going to make sure you get these. It's a lot harder to go in and say, look, we made promises. Mm-hmm. And, and we made promises, some of which are looking very difficult for us to keep. Can we have a conversation right. about how we can resolve this issue? Nobody's doing that. And I, again, I'm talking to you from Chicago, the, the debt management. I mean, we, we're, we're horrible at it. And my wife is a teacher in this area and, and so we know all too well, we've been living this for a while, how these things compound over time and how it grows and becomes an increasing concern. It becomes, frankly, it becomes harder to deal with it the longer you put it off. So this is a conversation we will be having for years to come. No and doubt. fingers crossed, because that's about the, the amount of uh, uh, confidence I have right now. We can keep these fingers crossed that somebody will step up to the plate. So a couple of other things related to the Fed actions. Uh, do mm-hmm. you see inflation increasing and secondarily increasing to the point where it becomes problematic? I do think we will see it increase eventually. What's happened in the really short term is with that rising uncertainty that came with COVID and the concerns about could we see another pullback or, or am I going to be able to return to my job? Um, people have kept a lot of money in checking and savings accounts. They haven't been spending on their credit cards. We saw the savings rate. That's, that's the ultimate measure from an economic standpoint. That's how much of income is not going back out as spending. We get a monthly report on, on personal income and spending. And the gap between what you make and what you spend is what we consider the savings. And that savings number has risen a lot. And at the same time, we've seen a massive movement of investment funds into things like money market funds, which are very low yielding, but they're safe. They're predictable, right? right? You kind of have an idea of where they're going to be a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, if, even if things go bad. So that has put a damper on inflation. It means that we haven't really seen a major pickup yet, but there is so much money that, again, if we see, as we talked about a little bit before, when we see that return to confidence, whether that's a vaccine or something else, we will start to see those flows back into the system. And I, I do believe that's going to result in a pickup in inflation, not necessarily hyperinflation. I'm not saying we're going back right, right. to the 70s, double digit inflation for years. But I do think we could run before before all of this in COVID, we were running at about one and a half percent year over year increase in prices. I think we could be at two and a half, three and a half and for short periods, a little bit higher in the years to come. I think that is is very likely to be a consequence of the actions that were taken. And if that occurred, you would not view that as problematic. That actually might be a healthy amount of inflation given the overall circumstances. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I think it's it's something that we can deal with. And, and frankly, if you have inflation like that and you have business loans or student loans, um, as essentially inflation into the future means your wages are probably going to go up or the value of money, you know, what you can buy with a dollar, it, it makes debt easier to pay essentially over time when we have some of that inflation. And so a, a, some inflation is a very healthy, you don't want deflation in an economy. You want some level of inflation. What's the correct amount? Is it 2%? Is it 3%? Is it 4%? Nobody knows exactly the right answer to that. 
but some inflation without going into the 10, 20, 30 and above range, uh, economies can grow on that. They can grow comfortably on that. It's a very livable environment. And, and if you look back at where inflation has been, where, where interest rates have been over the last 60 to 70 years, they're certainly higher than where they are now. So even with that rise, it kind of brings us back into line with, with what many people have lived with for most of their life. And I think that four and a half, I think it'll eventually settle down into around a two and a half percent pace. And that's a very comfortable place for the economy. Do you think that the zero interest rate environment that we're in, we just described how it's very positive for the federal government and the deficit. I think a lot of people, that point is lost on them because they look at the size of the debt and it's an astronomical number. Uh, mm -hmm. But if you liken it to refinancing your mortgage from three to 0.7, you know, everybody would do that and they'd be right. really happy. And they might right. even take on more debt if they could do that, right, wrong, or indifferently. Yeah. And so I think that's lost on folks, but some countries around the world have actually shifted to negative interest rates. Yeah. And I know the president has even hinted that he might like that. That seems really weird, right? Yeah. Weird, um, questionable. The, the data is, you know, the data is still, to a degree, the data is still out. The question is still out on whether or not negative rates are productive or effective. Um, the president would love, I mean, he's, he's a businessman. That's his history. He's used to borrowing to invest in projects, whether that's real estate, real yeah. estate or other ventures. And, and so it benefits. If you are a borrower, negative interest rates are a positive to you. I mean, think about that. If you go to negative interest rates, if banks offered me negative interest rates and said, Andrew, we want to give you $100,000, and in five years, we want you to pay us back $95,000. do not give us the whole thing back. We're going to pay you for holding this money. I, I think I could live with something like that. Yeah. But it's not productive for banks, and it's, it's really not – what we've seen kind of uh, in, in Europe and Japan, the, the central banks thought it would help to incentivize banks to do more lending – to put money out there because they weren't getting a return. In fact, they were paying to keep it on their balance sheets and, and it hasn't really worked. And so the Fed, Chair Powell and, uh, or, uh, and others have essentially said they don't have a plan to go there. The president can lean and can kind of push in that direction. They've said, you know, we don't think it's been an effective uh, tool. We haven't seen the results come from the European countries or Japan where that's been tried. So I think there's a low likelihood that we see it here. They may try things like interest rate targeting, which is a whole nother discussion. They've got other tools that they can use without having to go to negative interest rates. No, I think that's a great And they don't want to go there. I, I mean, we probably don't need to do something that extreme and that, that creates that much uncertainty because it, there's not a lot of track record for that kind of thing. Right, right. And what little we do have, the results have not been great. So let's talk a little bit, and you alluded to this before, is um, – there's so much liquidity now sloshing around. The Fed, the federal yeah. government, um, they've attacked this problem aggressively by flooding the system with liquidity. Yeah. And in part, that liquidity explains some of the rebound in the market. I think it's not just the economic fundamentals that you talked about in the first part of our conversation, but I think yep. some of it is just, it's making its way into the market because there's just so much out there. Is that something to be worried about, that there might be too much money sloshing around? What could be problematic about that? Or is it all good? 
it, it could be a concern, again, from that inflation standpoint. When that money starts getting put into action, um, that's a concern. There's also concerns, for example, when we have the money that goes out there, some of that money is going to investments that maybe shouldn't have happened. Naturally, you would have some businesses that even without COVID may have gone under. They just didn't have the right business model or they didn't have the, the customer base to really support the business and they get their lifetime extended we end up having uh, money and resources allocated to a side of the economy or to portions of the economy where it would be better suited moving potentially somewhere else one thing though that we've seen is is the fed has allocated a lot of these programs and they 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 said we stand behind this we will provide liquidity to businesses large medium small we're going to be buying some corporate bonds doing etc there's a lot of programs that they set up and got approved and ultimately haven't had to do much yeah. activity in. That's a good and, and what's happened is because people know the Fed is there and will step in if needed, they felt more comfortable operating in those spaces. And so the market then has started to do the work itself. If, if the more we have that happen, the less difficulty there is when the Fed ultimately does draw back right. and start to bring itself away from this um, because the, the heavier that businesses and consumers and, and groups become attached and reliant on the Fed, the more difficult it is to kind of get back towards normal. And that's a very real question that we'll, we'll have to see the ramifications of the unwind process over the next, say, three to five years. Beautiful. So in, in the time we have left, Drew, um, let's talk a little bit about this upcoming presidential election. Yeah. I don't think that the markets and the economy is necessarily focused on it just yet. There's a lot of other things to try and sort through. Uh, but yeah. this is looming to be a very important election, which sounds weird, right? Because listen, I'm 49 now. I've seen lots of elections and they all seem pretty important to me. Um, and they all seem to have epic outcomes. Looking back on mm -hmm. them, some of them seem tamer than others, but this one mm -hmm. turned up to be pretty important. I think most people would agree. Um, how does that factor into the economic outlook? I definitely have some opinions on those I'd like to run by you, but um, yeah. how would you kind of summarize the, the uh, upcoming presidential election and all of the craziness going on? There's craziness going on and there's going to be craziness that will go on. There's, this is an unusual election cycle with how everything is running. And there's a lot of things uh, that are going to take place between now and, and November 3rd. Um, that we don't even know about now. That happens every election cycle. When I try to evaluate the impact from the elections, I look at what are the potential outcomes? What are the scenarios that could come into play? So right now, we've got a Republican president, we've got a Republican Senate, we've got a Democratic House. Now, I will say now, I do not think the Democrats are going to lose the House. So then the question becomes, if we have a Democratic House, what happens with the presidency and with the Senate? Now, let's do the Senate first. The presidency is, is it's center ring and it's, it's going to get the spotlights on it. It gets the airtime. I think honestly that the Senate is one of the most important pieces this time around. If the Republicans keep the Senate and, and I, I think there's a decent chance they will, it's, it's kind of a toss up, but I think there's a, there's a distinct possibility they will keep the Senate. If they do the house and the Senate clash, they butt heads and what happens in Washington with opposing parties, they, they yell at each other, they scream at each other and not a whole lot actually gets done. So regardless of who the president is, whether that's Biden or whether that's Trump, if we do not see a change in the Senate, we're unlikely to see significant changes in policy. 
whether that's economic policy, whether that's tax policy, regulatory policy, trade policy, we're likely to see largely status quo. The one scenario that would lead towards a larger potential shift is with a Democratic sweep. Okay, so Trump comes, or uh, I'm sorry, Biden comes in, gets the presidency, the uh, Democrats take the Senate, they keep the House. So in that scenario, what could happen? Well, they would have the votes on some of their tax policy proposed changes. They want to move the top corporate tax rate to 39.6 from 37. It's a reversion back to essentially where we were uh, pre-tax change in 2018. They want to change the corporate tax rate. They want to move that to 28 from 21. That's a movement higher, but not to the 35% we had pre-2018. But it does move uh, those tax rates higher. There's some things that they want to do in terms of Social Security taxes, uh, some things in terms of the treatment of capital gains and dividend income as regular income for high-wage uh, high earners. Those look less likely to come through, but they would potentially have the votes on those two tax changes and a couple regulatory changes. But here, here's, here's the question that I look at in that scenario. Yes, they would potentially have the votes, but step back in time with me for a minute, okay? Let's go back to 2008, 2009. And back in 2008, 2009, we had President Obama coming in, taking office. We had Joe Biden there as his vice president. The Democrats had the Senate with, I think it was 59 seats. And if they were to take all the toss-up seats in the Senate right now, they'd have 53, okay? And they had the House. They also came in with the Bush-era tax cuts. And, and this is 2009 when... Similar to today, we had high unemployment and an economy looking to get back on its feet, get back into growth, get back into recovery. And in, in that environment, they did not have the votes in order to, to get the changes on the tax side. They said, we need to focus on getting jobs back. We need to focus on getting uh, uh, businesses investing and companies building here. And so in that type of scenario, uh, they ended up pushing back the Bush-era tax cuts until 2013, four years later. Now, I think, let's say that we see the Democratic sweep. The question is, are they going to prioritize increasing tax rates on, on individuals and corporations? Are they going are, are to prioritize increasing regulation when we still have above-trend unemployment and when companies and, and states are still trying to get back on their feet? Because if they say, okay, we need to focus on the economy first, then we'll do these tax changes, these regulatory changes. They have about a two-year window. 2022, we have midterm elections, and based on who is up for election, what seats are vulnerable in the Senate in 2022, it looks very likely the Republicans would take it back. So there is the potential. There is the potential that we could see changes to tax policy, both on the personal level and on the corporate level, and that could be a bit of a headwind from uh, an earning standpoint, from a market standpoint, but, but also like 2008, 2009, and the emergence, the recovery out of that time period, the economic growth, that pace of growth is going to more than offset the headwinds from those tax changes. We would grow at a slightly slower pace than we otherwise could, but we would grow nonetheless. But there's still so much, you know, I, I wish I could tell you who is going to be the, the president, you know, who's going to have the votes as of November 4th. I can't tell you exactly who that will be. I will say Trump needs to narrow the gap between now and the election date. He's behind in the polls by about seven points in the popular, the popular polls. He cannot maintain that disadvantage and win the Electoral College, um, but we'll see what happens. There is one thing, though, and I'll, I'll close this part of it on, on that. Um, 
There's one thing I can say with high conviction. I can't tell you with high conviction who's going to have the Senate, who's going to be the president come November 4th. But if we get the results on November 3rd, here's what I can say with high conviction, that on November 4th, half the country is going to wake up and be pissed off about the results. Half the country is going to be ecstatic about the results, and everybody's going to go back to work. And we're going to remain one of the most productive countries on the face of this earth. And Apple is going to build their next iPhone regardless of who the president is. And Amazon's going to work from getting two-day delivery down to one-day delivery down to six-hour delivery or whatever it is. They're going to do that regardless of who wins the election. And entrepreneurs and innovators are still going to look at the U.S. and say their rule of law, their private property rights, their, the way their system is set up here in the U.S. that promotes growth, that promotes investment, it's no mistake that we are the tech leader, that we're a healthcare leader, that we are a communication services leader uh, internationally. And so that American spirit that really at the end of the day makes us who we are, that will not change on November 4th. That I'm quite confident about. You sound an awful lot like Brian Westbury. <laughs> Brian Westbury, Jim Bowen, I, I love who I work with. And, uh, and, and, you know, these guys have built businesses. They built First Trust where I work. They, they've worked with a large number of businesses. And we, again, we look at the, you know, we, we say at the end of the day, the math wins. The math wins. The, the spirit ultimately wins out over time. And, and, well, the narrative, you know, it bleeds, it leads. We tend to see a lot of the negatives. There's been some, frankly, some miraculous things that have happened in this country over the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years that, are, are often kind of overlooked or underappreciated, but it's been a magical time to be alive. Sure. So just to let everybody in on the inside joke, Brian Westbury is, what would his title be? The senior economist or the chief? He's our chief economist. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I get to do research. I get to spend my days. I work for Brian. Yes. Brian is terrific. I followed him for a very, very long time. Super impressive guy and definitely is an optimist. Um, so let me just run a couple of quick things for you and then we could finish up. Is yeah. part of my thinking, it may be related to a bias I have, but part of my thinking is that because the two presidential candidates don't agree on anything, and I recognize that historically the market is relatively agnostic as to whether it's a Democrat or Republican, right? We could agree on that. But it seems yeah. like with everything going on that it would be a little bit of a challenge to switch horses in the middle of the rebuild where we're coming out of this. We're trying to sort through the shutdowns, how we deal with the new normal, tackling the pandemic. There's just a lot going on. And then yep. you're going to have this election. Would it be problematic? Not from a political standpoint, we could debate that on a political show, but I'm talking mm -hmm. about just, all of the assumptions that are made would have to change. As you described, uh, a Biden presidency uh, is likely to gonna have different tax policy, different regulatory policy, different right. rhetoric from the bully pulpit, will mm -hmm. uh, focus on different things, emphasize different things. So how would you describe that worry that I have? And before you answer, I recognize that we did that with President Obama taking over for President Bush, mm -hmm. and, and it kind of worked out okay. We could complain about maybe the economic growth wasn't as great as we would have hoped for, but we did have the longest sure. bull market and the longest economic streak that we ever had. So certainly right. 
people's fears about President Obama coming into office and everything falling apart didn't materialize. And people said that also with President Trump getting elected. But yep. that's a worry of mine. How would you respond to that? I, it will definitely bring volatility as we lead up to the elections because people are going to be pricing in based on who they think is going to win. They may think certain sectors are going to move faster or certain policies will or won't get done. And that uncertainty causes people to kind of shift back and forth. We work, we make emotional decisions. I, you know, everybody I think kind of does that. We work off emotions and that, that tends not to be the most useful thing from an investment standpoint, but, but emotions will come into play. That, that uncertainty will come into play. People will kind of be shifting around as the odds change as we get closer to election. Uh, the, the last two to three months leading up to election tend to be a bit more volatile than usual. But then as soon as the elections are over, whether the person people thought was going to win or didn't think was going to win, as we saw last time around, um, as soon as it's in place, people say, well, at least I have a little more clarity. Even if that's not who I thought was going to win, I have a little bit more clarity from this point moving forward. We see a bit of a, a, a movement lower in that uncertainty, things like the, the VIX, the uncertainty indexes, and companies as well. The companies may say, I'm going to hold off until after November before I make a decision on some of my investments because I don't, as, an, as a company, I don't know whether I should build a plant over in Europe right now because who comes out of the elections may impact our relationship with them. But, but as soon as that happens, they pull the trigger, they start making the investments because they have some clarity on it. I think we will transition. I think we'll have volatility again. I do think we'll have volatility leading into this election, but I think as we've seen in the past, once we know the path that we're headed down for the, at least the next two years, um, at the end of the year, late November into December, we'll see, uh, we'll see uncertainty subside and we'll see that planning for the future start resulting in investments. We'll start seeing it uh, on, on, on the business side and on the individual side. Clarity tends to lift the markets. The decision being put in place tends to lift the markets. And I, I think that will happen this time as well. So, so for people, like I, I work with um, investors, right? And mm -hmm. uh, I'm blessed that I have a practice that is a blend of, you know, lots of different people with different backgrounds, different ages, political views, and on and on and on. But when President Obama was first elected in 2008, I spoke with a lot of people, you alluded to this before, that were distraught. Yeah. And extremely worried, at least economically, from the markets and investing and building wealth. You know, much of yeah. that was, turns out to be misplaced. And then with the election of Donald Trump, I had similar conversations the day after the election and the weeks after the election. It was the same right. conversation, but just with a different group of people. Yeah. I bet you'll have those. I bet you're going to have those conversations again this year. Every four years, I hear from somebody different who's going to be moving to Canada or Europe or one of the Nordic countries or wherever they're going to go because they can't believe the results of the election. But they hear all the, the punditry and they feel all the emotion that leads up to this election cycle. And politics are like uh, they're a personal thing. And, and they, they rile us up every four years. Um, but at the end of the day, as we look back on any of these presidential changes that have taken place. Some have worked out better than others. Um, but over time, the markets, these free markets, the system we have in place tends to outweigh the changes that we see from a presidential standpoint. It makes some change. It does make a difference, yes. but we tend to overstate the difference. We our, our expectation on how dramatic the shift in life and in, in, in the way that we operate will be with a change in, in who's in charge. And then as we get six weeks, six months into it, 
we realize that life looks more normal than it does different. Yes. So is it fair to say, though, as an economist, that mm -hmm. you would prefer divided government over one party having all three uh, level levers of power? You would prefer, regardless of party, you would prefer the, a party not to have both the House, the Senate, and the White House. That is correct. I mean, especially as, as we talked a little earlier, we talked about the debt picture and the spending. You tend to have less spending when they can't agree to spend on anything. Right. And if you could, if, if I could choose and say, let them yell at each other and not increase our spending, let's let them yell at each other and not put, you know, not make changes, I'll, I'll take that all day. All right, beautiful. Well, Drew, thank you so much for uh, this two-part conversation. I really appreciate your time. It's been a great discussion. You've answered a number of questions, things that I, I think about as I try and help my clients win with money. Uh, listeners, please subscribe to the Simply Financial Podcast. I always ask that. Also, if you're not a client, or even if you are a client, check out the website, elliotwealth.com. Uh, if you're not a client, you could sign up for a complimentary consultation where we could talk about how we help our clients win with money. Uh, so thanks again, Drew. I hope you have a great day. And listeners, I'll be back with you on the next episode of the Simply Financial Podcast very soon. The views expressed are not necessarily the opinion of SagePoint Financial Incorporated and should not be construed directly or indirectly as an offer to buy or sell any securities mentioned herein. Investing is subject to risks, including loss of principal invested. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. No strategy can assure a profit nor protect against loss. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon when coordinated with individual professional advice. Please note, the information being provided is strictly as a courtesy. When you link to any of the websites provided here, you are leaving this website. We make no representation as to the completeness or accuracy of the information provided at these websites, nor is the company liable for any direct or indirect technical or system issues or any consequences arising out of your access to your use of third-party technologies websites, information, and programs made available through this website. When you access one of these websites, you are leaving our website and assume total responsibility and risk for your use of the websites you are linking to. Securities and advisory services are offered through SagePoint Financial Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC, insurance services offered through Elliott Wealth Management, LLC, not affiliated with SagePoint Financial.